Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today we're talking to Ryan Van Duzer, and Ryan is a YouTuber, has a ton of content out there about adventure, bike touring, bikepacking, ultra running, all that, and huge personality, really likable dude. And the, how I came across Ryan was back in like 2011, 2012, I, I wanted to ride my bike up the East Coast from Florida to Maine, East Coast of the U.S., that is. And I saw that this guy on YouTube had done that and had this whole video series, and I just watched it to learn everything I could. And I was so impressed by the dude's just excitement and attitude, and I've been a fan ever since. So Ryan is someone I've always wanted to have on the podcast. It just makes so much sense, but, you know, time just goes by, and you never reach out. Like, there's just there's a handful of people who are like Ryan that I'd love to have on the show. It's just... We constantly get new guests coming in and, you know, you just get caught up in life. Next thing you know, it's like, wow, I'd love to interview them. Well, guess what? One of, one of my friends, Will, who just started a podcast called To Live Terminally, had Ryan on the show. And I'm like, Will, how did the heck did you get Ryan Van Duzer is like your first guest or one of your first guests? And he's like, yeah, man, I'll put you in touch. So he put us in touch, got to meet Ryan, got to do this interview and can't thank Will enough. And again, that podcast is To Live Terminally. And I'm going to be on that show here soon. So be listening for that. Other, It's a great show. Uh, Will's a friend from college. We're also going to be talking about something that's unique to Ryan on the show, which is, you know, he, he's a YouTuber, so he has tons of videos. But he just wrote a book. So a totally different experience for him. And the book is about his very first adventure, the really big adventure that he did on his own biking over 4,000 miles from Honduras, where he was stationed for the Peace Corps, all the way back home to Colorado, Boulder, Colorado. And I don't know about Ryan, but I hear this from a lot of adventurers. You know, we get people who are career adventurers. They've done the biggest things in the world, super long trips, and they've been doing them for years. But there's something about that first big adventure or that, that one where you really had to prove yourself early on that just sticks out in your mind. For me, I do have, it's my Alaska trip where I flew to Alaska and rode back home to Florida with my best friend. That trip, for some reason, is just, it's almost like that coming of age story. And no matter what I do in the future, I could go to the moon. Something about that experience will just be more impactful than almost any other trip. It's not the longest trip. It's not the hardest trip I've done. It's not the most extreme by any means, but it, I was so different before and after. And every trip since it's been, I've been different on the way back, but not nearly as different as that first one. And it seems the same thing is true with Ryan's trip here. Uh, Cause he's done, like I said, so many huge adventures. And so we're going to learn about this experience of biking home after a two-year stint with the Peace Corps. And if you're interested in learning more about the book, learning more about uh, what Ryan decided to write about almost, gosh, 20 years after the experience, get the book, The Long Way Home. You can find out more about it at prioritybicycles.com. There's a link in the show notes or doozerbook.com or his YouTube channel. Uh, It's out right now. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little bit about Ryan Van Duzer's story in the intro, but now we're going to welcome Ryan to the show. Welcome, Ryan. How you doing? I'm here. It's real. I, it's it's happening. I'm, I'm happy to be here, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so so great having you. Mr. Mr. Optimism, Mr. Enthusiasm. Uh, it's real. It's not just for for show. We're not on, yeah. we are on camera, but we're not recording that. You're You're just excited all the time, huh? Not all the time. I mean, I am a human. I have, you know, <laughs> down days just like anybody else. He's a human. But when you see me on my channel, I'm on an adventure. You're seeing months of preparation. I'm out there doing what I love. I'm hanging out with Mother Nature and all my best friends. So, yeah, when you see me on my channel, I'm usually pretty psyched. No matter how many trips I do, I'm always extremely nervous and doubtful. The day before I start, you know, like, is this the right thing to do? You know, should I be doing something else with this time? What What are you feeling right before, like the day before the morning of an adventure? That's a fun question. I don't think I've been asked that before. You know, I'm like, for me, it's Christmas Eve. I'm excited. <laughs> I can't sleep. I'm pumped because I've been dreaming about 
whatever adventure I'm on, I've been looking at maps and routes and resupply locations and the beauty. And maybe I've gone on YouTube and watched some other people doing their adventure. And so I'm psyched. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't ever feel like, oh, maybe I should be doing something else. Like this, like I know exactly that this is where I should be right now. Yeah, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong then. Because <laughs> I'm always <laughs> like, I mean. oh my God, what am I getting into here? Man, you're, so I usually ask this first is where you're coming from and, and, and where's home for you. Uh, I, I, it's pretty well established where you're from. You share that a lot, but do you, do you mind telling folks where you, maybe you're not coming from home today? I am. I am sitting in my little apartment in Boulder, Colorado, where I was born and raised. We can go way back if you want. I was born on Super Bowl Sunday in 1979. No kidding. <laughs> and this has been my home. This has been my home ever since. I'm very fortunate to have grown up in Boulder, which is a very uh, beautiful place, an outdoor friendly place, lots of adventures. And I had lots of mentors in this town who do cool stuff in the great outdoors. So it was a lot of young people growing up in the United States might idolize, you know, football and baseball players. I idolize like elite runners and climbers and people doing cool stuff outside. What was it like growing up in Boulder? Because you're, you're, you're a, you're a rare breed, someone born and raised. I mean, there's, there's not many people from Boulder. What is it like to be from Boulder? You know, I love it. I'm very proud of my little town. You know, it's not perfect, just like any place, but I love it. You know, it's cultivated a community that's progressive and environmentally conscious and health conscious. And there's trails everywhere. There's, you know, protected bike lanes all over the city. So I've never had a car in my life. I've never driven really. So I ride my bike everywhere. And so I'm fortunate to have been, to have been raised in a town where that's even possible. Cause most of America, you get on your bike and you ride across some of these towns or cities and it's dangerous, but Boulder really cares about you know, alternative transportation and the environment and social issues. And so I I love my town. Like I said at the beginning, it's not perfect. There are some things that I really don't like. The main one being that it's very expensive. And so it's a hard place for somebody to come move to if they're, you know, not making good money. And, uh, you know, we're trying to, to change that with some affordable housing initiatives. But in general, I love my town. I mean, it's obviously an awesome place. I've never lived there. I used to live in Golden. And so, you know, a 20, 30-minute trip to Boulder was was pretty frequent. Is it hard watching just, just the influx of people or so many folks that aren't from there and this being really your home, like, you're like from day one? You know, I love when somebody comes to Boulder and they've been here for a few months, and I love welcoming, to the, welcoming them to the community. Because I know that they're in for a great ride. I mean, it's I, I love Boulder. And so when people when I meet people that have just moved here, I'm like, oh, let me know if you need any advice or connections or whatever, you know, because I want people to come here and have a good time and, and really enjoy it and become part of the community. You know, what I don't like is the like insane amounts of money. And that's happening all over the country in desirable small mountain towns. You know, you could talk about Crested Butte or... Buena Vista in Colorado and investors are coming in and buying up all the real estate and then Airbnb being everything out and that's not helping the community. And so I, I truly believe that Boulder's community is strong and, and wonderful. Um, and so when people come here, I want to let them know that we love them and they're going to be part of this magic. Absolutely. No, the, I, I feel like Boulder is doing a good job holding on to that or keeping it at bay versus some other places. So, and all that is, 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 is people doing that people like you. So that's awesome. You know, speaking of money, I don't know if there was tons going around growing up. You single mom, I don't, a couple, a handful of kids. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. How do you think that shaped you? So, yeah, I was raised by a single mom that she had four kids and, you know, she worked essentially, you know, as like, account finance person for a nonprofit. So she wasn't making lots of money. And so we didn't grow up like the traditional Boulder kids. A lot of my friends had big houses and lots of money and went on exciting, you know, trips on spring break and Chris, or, uh, Christmas and summer. And we didn't really get to do that. So what it did do was foster an appreciation for what I do have and the, the local surroundings. So when my friends were going off on tropical vacations on spring break, I would get on my bicycle and ride all over Boulder. 
And I really, that's when I started exploring my town and the dirt trails. And I loved it. I loved the feeling of exploring on my own. And Boulder is beautiful. So it's like, it didn't matter that I wasn't in Maui or whatever, like my friends, like I was having the time of my life. So because we didn't have a lot, you know, I really learned to appreciate what we did have. And one of my mom's sayings to us when we were little kids, because it was hard, you know, when your friends get all the coolest new toys and they, you know, they have all the best, you know, desserts after dinner. We didn't have that. She would say, I may not be able to give you everything you want, but I'll definitely be able to get you everything you need, you know, and that meant just the basics in life and love and family and, you know, the good stuff. And so I've taken that and that's been like the core of my, my being ever since is like just really appreciating the little things in life, nature, a beautiful day laying under a tree and just listening to the wind blow in the leaves, just like things that are right outside your door and can be found anywhere, not just in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You know, for a lot of people, a lot of times we hear, you know, folks, it, it takes going off to realize what you have at home, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. especially if you grow up somewhere like Boulder where, where, yeah, you, your friends are going somewhere else, but you know, it, it really is a destination where you live for a lot of other people um, yeah. for all kinds of reasons, especially the mountains. Did it take going off somewhere to kind of appreciate home or, or were you always kind of already viewing home that way because your mom? As a kid, when you're, you're growing up in the town where you're from, you don't really know any difference. So I didn't really know how spectacular Boulder was and being able to see the beautiful Flatiron Mountains every single day. I didn't, I mean, I knew that it was cool and pretty, but I didn't realize it until I traveled a little bit and just how special this community is. So yeah, it took some, some getting out there, but that didn't happen until I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. We never really went on family vacations. You know, I remember I always joke that the furthest I ever got as a kid was to Cheyenne, Wyoming for a soccer game. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) Yeah. So in that instance, I definitely realized how awesome Boulder was. Hey, man, Cheyenne is uh, Cheyenne's got its own charm for sure. Yeah, yeah I love Wyoming. No hate on Wyoming. No hate on Wyoming. That's it's just uh, windy. It's always that, windy. But that was your that was your you know tropical vacation. Cheyenne, yeah, for me that baby. was a big deal. We were getting in the car. We were going across a border. You know, going to Wyoming. That was that was pretty exciting. Oh man, the Wild West. That's awesome. So so yeah. Honduras was. Uh, might as well have been another planet when yeah. you went there. What tell us like Peace Corps was that? I mean, just based on kind of the the you said your mom was was working for a nonprofit, so obviously had some sort of mission in life with yeah. whatever she was doing there. She kind of instilled that kind of service mindedness with you. Like, tell us about how you even ended up with the Peace Corps. Yeah, you know, my mom was one of those super moms that worked hard and raised four kids and was always at our back-to-school nights and everything and and volunteered for the school, whatever, that needed fundraising. And so that was probably a big part of it. And also just growing up in a family where people reached out and, and helped us in certain occasions, just came out of nowhere, just angels helping. I remember one Christmas you know, a, a few families got together and made sure that we had a good Christmas, you know, and that was just like, it was really sweet. And I, even though I was young, I realized what a big deal that was. And I remember saying to myself, when I get older, I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to help and I'm going to make the world a better place. And I don't, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I just, I knew that people helping people was a beautiful thing. And I wanted to be part of that. So, yes, I joined the Peace Corps right after college. I had done some short volunteer stints in the Dominican Republic during spring breaks in college, and I absolutely loved the experience. I also volunteered with after-school programs here in Boulder with a lot of Mexican immigrant youth. And I just realized that there's a lot of people out there that need a little extra help. And uh, I wanted to do something long-term. I wanted to do something longer than a week. I really wanted to become part of a community. And that's why the Peace Corps is really enticing because you're out there. You're you're living at at the same level of the community members. You're living in the same type of housing and you're part of the community. And that was quite an experience for sure. What what was your goals if you had any at that time with what you wanted to do on TV? Because I know even then you studied 
you know, broadcasting, I believe, in college. So you, you kind of had the mindset you wanted to be on the camera or just working in that industry. This almost felt like a buffer to maybe figure that out or just kind of give back in some way. What what was kind of your mindset going from college to Honduras? Then when that started to come to a close, what might be next? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You know, yeah, I got a degree in broadcast journalism and I've always been a storyteller and I've, I like telling stories. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in broadcast journalism school at the university of Colorado, go buffs, they teach you how to be like a local news anchor or local reporter. And I did an internship at the local NBC station in Denver. And it was was exciting to be in the TV studio and meeting some of the people that I had been watching on the news growing up my entire life. But I realized very quickly that that is not the type of stories that I wanted to tell. You know, local news, you know, to me, it's a lot of sensational stuff. And just like news in general, there's a saying, if it bleeds, it It leads. That's right. You know, and I just didn't want to be part of that. I wanted to to tell happy stories, inspirational stories. And I didn't know what it meant at the time, but I knew that I didn't want to do local news. No offense to local news reporters. They do a great job, but I just knew that I did not want to do that. So when I was, it was towards the end of college, I was like, you know, I'm definitely joining the Peace Corps. I want to do something completely different. I don't even want to go into the journalism world. And that those two years in Honduras were pivotal in shaping my mindset for the future. And, you know, living in a developing nation, living somewhere completely different than Boulder, seeing how most of the world works outside of rich Boulder and realizing that there's a lot of need out there. And so the the Peace Corps was really something that was, it was like, no, like, of course I was going to do the Peace Corps, even though my mom was like, don't you want a real job? And don't you want to go and like, you know, start making money? And I was like, no, I really want to do this. This is important to me. And off I went to join the Peace Corps in Honduras and I was a youth development volunteer. So I worked with kids and I've worked with kids in other programs here in Boulder. You know, if you watch my channel, you know that I'm pretty goofy and I'm good with kids. And I, I've always loved working with, with young people. I did all sorts of different projects during my two years in Honduras. I coached boys and girls soccer teams. You know, I raised money to build a small school. But the main thing I did, I think the biggest impact I had wasn't a specific project. I was just like a local mentor, big brother type character in this small town. And, you know, I would give out tons of piggyback rides every day. I mean, the kids would come over to my house and just want to play. And that's what we did all the time. My house became like a little mini youth center where we had like art supplies and we had musical instruments and we would choreograph dances and all sorts of just goofy stuff, just hanging out with the kids. And I think the, the impact of that was just that, hey, this, this random gringo just came to our town. <laughs> we don't quite know why he's here, but, you know, he's here and he's, he's you know, just ha- hanging out with us. He's just letting us know that he cares cares about us. And that was just big. The kids would come to my house every day after school and we would just hang out and it was a safe place. Like you said, I, I, you, that was a while ago, two years, two years, man, is a long time looking ahead. You know what I mean? I'm about to be here for two years. Looking back, it probably feels like a flash in the pan. That's, 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 that's a master's degree. You know, that's a program that that's, that's quite a bit of time. What do you, what do you think kind of the biggest impact it left on you? leaving from that experience and also maybe, maybe sure. I know you talked about some of those things, but if you have a story of, of something that was really impactful to you there, we'd love to hear it. Two years was daunting, you know, especially leaving my mom. I'm a total mama's boy. And the idea of leaving her for two full years and my brothers and sister and my community, you know, I was 23 years old at the time. And I was like, wow, I'm going to go live in this country. That's you know, maybe I'll have electricity. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll have running water. I didn't know any of those things. And it was, it was scary. There's no doubt. But those two years really taught me a lot about myself and what I can, what I can do, you know? And there were many moments during the first year where I was like, why am I here? 
what am I doing? Really questioning why I was, I was there. You know, it's because it's hard to start projects and, and it's hard to get things going. And, you know, I might get excited about something, but then it fizzles off and it doesn't have much in community engagement. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, like, what's the point? You know, and it's, it was really difficult. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't able just to like be an all-star because grow, growing up in Boulder and going to high school and college, like I was involved in everything and everything I did, I could do it well. But Honduras was the first time where it was like, bam, boy, like you're going to have to work extra hard and you got to dig a lot deeper than you've ever gone to accomplish things. It was a struggle. And I think through those struggles, I learned a lot about myself and what I can accomplish and how the world works and just that the world moves at a different pace than the United States. You know, we might dream up a project here and we, we can hire a team and get it done in a matter of months. Things move a lot slower in Honduras and in developing nations. And so I really had to like, you know, temper my expectations for things. I was going to go down there and change the world. And in two years, Honduras was going to be a different place. But I had to realize quickly, like, no, I was going to make some pretty small changes, if any, to this community. Did you learn there were any benefits to, to just that pace of life? Absolutely. You know, I really admire, you know, Latin America in general. I've been all over Mexico in Central America. I just, I love that they focus on the important things in life. They focus on family, you know, just being there for one another in the community. You know, in my little village, the kids are out playing in front of their houses every night and the moms and grandmas sit in the front of the houses. And it just has this wonderful old timey feel, which I think the United States was like in the 1950s. But now it's not really like that. People live in these communities here in the United States they get home, they drive their car, they shut the garage door, all the houses have fences. Like you don't see much life on the streets, you know? People watch their TVs, kids play in the backyards. But in Honduras, life was on the street and it was just vibrant and fun and beautiful. And so that was something that I really took home was that idea of just a tight knit, beautiful community. Even though they don't have much, the average Honduran at the time made $600 a year you know, they're mostly just living off of their own crops out in the fields and working at the markets. They didn't have Xboxes and Playstations like we did. You know, we can look at them and be like, oh, so much poverty. But really, they're living a beautiful life. You, you mentioned something really interesting there. It's, it's hard to replicate that. One thing we did when we moved into our neighborhood, it's an old neighborhood. I took down the privacy fences and I nice. haven't put them back up. And it, it, it makes a huge difference. You can't be 30 feet from your neighbor and not say hello. Yeah. When you're looking at them across your property line, you have to engage. And so even when it's kind of uncomfortable or I just don't feel like it, it, it forces us to connect. And man, it, it has been probably the best decision I've made with that yard is just taking that down. It's, it's, it's not, you don't want to, but you, you, it's always, it's like eating your vegetables. Well, it's, it's hard to tell you that you're a vegan <laughs> or vegetarian. It's like, I don't want to eat those. But when you do, you feel so much better. You never walk away from those interactions feeling that was a waste of time. Absolutely. And what it does is it creates a bond. It creates a community feeling almost like family. So you can count on your neighbors someday. Maybe if there's something wrong and you can run over next door and they can help you. I mean, that's the beauty of living in a community. Whereas a lot of times in the United States, people live in these communities, dense, densely populated communities, but they don't know any of their neighbors. And to me, that's bonkers because in Honduras, everybody knows each other and somebody's having a birthday and everybody's going to that birthday party and there's, everybody's bringing something for the potluck. And it's, it's every little, every little thing that a community or a neighbor would help with is now a service to pay for, mm -hmm. yeah. which is, which is cool. You know, that there, there's benefits to that, of course, but it's like, you don't have anyone to just take your dog out if you're gone for two days. You know what I mean? You got to hire somebody for a hundred dollars yeah. to do that for a day or two. And it is crazy that like, that's not possible for a lot of people. And it is unfortunate. Yeah. Well, tell us about, you know, once this experience was coming to an end, hugely impactful, two years of your life, especially so young, it's life-changing. 
what were your options at that point as that was coming to a close? I know this is, you know, leading into a really big part of what we're going to talk about yeah. with your book and whatnot, but what, what were you seeing as your options at this point? So, I mean, it took a year of just living in Honduras to like feel like I was part of the community. And then my second year of living in Honduras, I really thrived. I was, I was doing good work. I, w- I was a respected member of the community. You know, kids were at my house every day. I loved it. And so the, it was really hard to think of, you know, before I went, two years is so long, but now I'm looking at the end of the service and I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to go home. Like, I love this so much. I'm finally like thriving in this, but it was time to go home. Peace Corps only lasts for two years. And I didn't want to just jump on an airplane and be home in a matter of five hours. I thought that would be too fast. It would have been reverse culture shock. I wanted time to really think and process the work that I had done, but also time to think about what I wanted to do with my life. This was the first time in my life where I didn't know my next step. Up until this point, you're like middle school, high school, college, Peace Corps. Like I pretty much knew all those steps, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And now as a young man, I was like, I had my college degree. What am I even going to do to make money and be a part of this society? I didn't know. I really didn't. I had some ideas. So I thought, okay, I don't want to jump on an airplane and be home. So I'm going to cash in the airplane ticket that the Peace Corps is giving me, use that money to buy a bicycle, and I'm going to ride my bike home. And I know that sounded like a crazy idea to pretty much everybody I told it to, especially my mom. She was not happy. She thought the Peace Corps was crazy. So I imagine this was just, I mean, this is just the next level up. I'll never forget chatting with her on MSN Messenger at an internet cafe in my town, (laughs) telling her what I was going to do. And she is like, oh, hell no. Like, no, come home. You know, because... Just get Get on on a plane. plane. I'll see you tomorrow. Do what everybody else is doing and come home. Like, this is... Like, stop it. You know, okay, you know, I, I, I get it. She's single mom, four kids. We're all she has, you know, you know, and she was scared. It was a, it was yeah. a decision she was making out of fear to tell me not to, to do this. But I was, um, I was motivated and I really wanted to do this. I had never done anything like this, not even close, but I knew that it would be the, the biggest adventure of my life. I just knew it. And I wasn't really worried that people like, aren't you worried about getting robbed or getting hit by a car or like whatever, getting a disease. I wasn't like, I just saw it as like the greatest opportunity of my life. Like how cool was it that I have the opportunity and the time to do this, to ride my bike from Honduras all the way back to Boulder, Colorado. And so that was my mindset for the last six months of my service, preparing for this grand adventure. You know, and so we can get into the details if you want, but I just, the final day of my service was one of the saddest and most exciting days of my life because I was leaving behind all the kids that I had worked with for two years, all the community kids. And they came to my house that morning and they were all crying, which of course made me cry. And it was a very somber moment. And they didn't really understand because they were still pretty young. They just knew me as this like super fun gringo that was like always there for them for those two years. I saw them every single day. I went to their birthday parties. I went to their confirmation, everything. I was like a brother to these, these kids. And they didn't really get why I was leaving. They're like, oh, don't you live here? Isn't this your home? And it was hard to explain to them that, no, I actually live pretty far away and I need to go home because my mom misses me. And I know you, you can understand that because your moms all love you. And so the final day is, is horribly difficult in a lot of ways. The kids are like holding onto my legs, telling me not to go. <laughs> Did you have second thoughts? I didn't. No, I really didn't. You know, I was so, when I put my mind to something like it's on. And I had gotten this trailer for my bicycle and I packed up, you know, what I thought I would need, you know, camping equipment and some food and energy bars. Where were you getting that stuff? Were you just shopping locally? No. So the the trailer came down with a friend who came to visit me because you can't buy these types of things in Honduras. Right. And then my mom sent down like a box of power bars, like original gold wrapper power bars way back in the day. And I saved them for months, knowing that I was going to need them for the bike ride. And so I had a box of power bars 
and some other things. And then I gave away all my furniture and bed and whatever else to the community. And I packed it all up in my little trailer. And I'll, I had like a, a flagpole on the back of the the trailer that had the flag of Honduras on it. Big flag of Honduras. I was, I was proud of of my time there. I was proud of this country and I wanted to show the people that I was, I loved them. And that flag really meant a lot to me. And I think even more to them. And then, yeah, I got on my bike, tears streaming down my face. And I rode away from all these kids that were like, just gathered together to watch their buddy, Ryan or Brian. They didn't really, couldn't really pronounce my name. (laughs) They always called me Brian. They watched me (laughs) ride my bike away. Wow. It was a powerful moment. It really was. And when I, even when I'm explaining it right now, I almost get a little choked up because it was such a big day in my life. I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) You knew you were headed home. I knew I was headed home and I knew it was going to be physically hard and daunting and scary. And, you know, the weather was going to be different in, you know, certain areas. And I was like, okay, like, here here we go. Like... (laughs) Vamanos. Vamanos. Mi amor por tu es real. Got to <laughs> exactly. tell them. Love you guys. Got to go. You know, you've done a lot. You've done a lot of adventures. You know, your resume, your adventure resume is long. You've done a lot of, you know, cross-country bike rides and TV shows and off-road, on-road, races, Colorado Trail, all this. But it's something... I feel like every adventurer has that one adventure that really just, it was it for him. Mm-hmm. It might not be the biggest or the most glamorous or or whatever, but it was the one that kind of set him on this path that just is really special. I have one. It's not my biggest, it's a big one, but not my biggest. And I, I try to explain on paper to people some of my other adventures that I think are even cooler, frankly, but it just doesn't hit home like that first one or like that really important one. It, it, do you have that? Is this adventure that one for you? Yeah, I will say that this adventure was that. And I tell people now, 15 years later, that I'd never felt so alive in my life. You know, every day I would wake up on the side of the road, pack up my stuff, get on my bike and not know where I was going. Remember, this is 2005. Yeah. There are no smartphones, nothing, no GPS, nothing. And so I was just using a paper map and mostly just talking to locals about the best way to get from point A to point B every single day. So every day was a brand new adventure and it was exciting and fun. And I learned really quickly that the world was going to take care of me. I met so many wonderful people every single day who invited me into their homes, who fed me meals, who let me camp in their backyards. And I never felt in danger ever. And I loved that feeling of love. I love the feeling of connection to fellow humans who don't even know who I am, but they're going to come out and they're going to help me. And it was, it was, it was, it was new. You know, I had lived in Honduras for two years and lived in this tiny village, which was you know, eye-opening. But I think this adventure was even more eye-opening because, you know, living in the United States, you get fed a line about Mexico and all the major news outlets that it's so dangerous, that it's a narco state, that, you know, you should be very, very careful when you're traveling in Mexico. And some of that is probably true. But I didn't experience any of that. You know, it was just pure love the entire way home. And so fast forward to when I get home three months later, I was like, I want to find a way to do this for the rest of my life. I want to be an adventure storyteller. I want to find a way to make money doing this. And at the time, I had no idea what that meant. There was no YouTube. There was no online video. (laughs) That's crazy. It was pre-YouTube. That's wild. Pre-YouTube, yeah. yeah. The only way to make a living doing something like this might be to work for National Geographic or be a documentary filmmaker or... I I didn't even know, but I knew that I wanted to do this. Mm. And slowly over the past, you know, since 2005, when I got home to 2022, my career has taken many different twists and turns, but the core has always been there to be an adventure storyteller with the goal of inspiring other people to get out and challenge themselves in some way, shape or form. Mm. Well, if if you don't mind, I I know... This this show works the best when we focus on one adventure 
Mm. For someone like you that's a serial adventurer, <laughs> career adventurer, it's hard to encapsulate or encapsulate your entire career in an hour-long yeah. podcast. But this ignited everything. Um, this is the adventure that kind of started this whole thing, this fire. Can you can you take us through maybe an experience or just a story that happened on, whether it's in the book or not, that just really captures the spirit of of, of everything you talk about through your YouTube channel, just maybe as an encounter or a day or, or, or a hardship that you went through out on that trip that just really stands out as, a, as, a, as an important moment for you still? You know, that's tough. I mean, every day was had its, had its magic and its beauty. And, you know, way down in southern Mexico, when I was going through that area, there was a hurricane at the time going through the Yucatan part of southern Mexico. Because Mexico was what? Two-thirds of this trip or something like that? It was huge. Yeah, oh, yeah. Mexico was most of it. And I was getting rained on every single day, like serious rain, like to the point where like my fingers were all wrinkled up. Like I just jumped into a swimming pool, you know, but I was just riding my bike. It was that wet every single day. And it you know, that kind of riding it gets old pretty quickly because you're cold and you're shivering and you just don't have a break. <laughs> so I was at the tail end of this hurricane and it's getting hammered. And, um, Everywhere I went, even if I popped into a little, you know, truck stop on the side of the road, the the guys would be like, whoa, where did you come from? Because, you know, there weren't many white dudes on bikes down in middle of nowhere, <laughs> Mexico at this time. And they would, you know, they were so welcoming and cool. You know, they would they would gather around a table and they would ask me questions about the adventure and they would pull out maps and they would say, OK, now this is where you want to go next because this road over here is dangerous but this is a good one and stay on this road. And I just remember feeling really taken care of, you know? And I remember writing to my mom saying, Hey mom, I know you're, you're scared and you're nervous about what I'm doing down here, but it seems like everybody has my back everywhere I go. Somebody thinks what I'm doing is pretty cool and they're taking care of me, whether it's truckers on the side of the roads or to some small family, a little village that are inviting me into their home to eat a meal. And that's when I started looking at myself as like an ambassador for the United States. I was this bicycling ambassador riding around and we had these wonderful conversations with all these people because they have these ideas of what an American is like. They watch the action movies, they watch Rambo, and then all of a sudden they see me come through on a bike. They're like, whoa, okay, we've got a real live American in our little village that's never been here before. And you kind of got that personality. You're not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> that, that boisterous, loud, like not loud, you know what I'm saying? Like just yeah, yeah, totally. vibrant personality that kind of does reflect probably a lot of what they know. That's funny. Absolutely. You know, and I, you know, I lived in Honduras for two years so I could speak Spanish and yeah. we ha I had all these wonderful moments, just, you know, just everyday conversations with people. And it was my chance to like, you know, show them what, you know, the, at least I was like, you know, what this American was like. And it was, it was fun and it was beautiful. And it was like that the entire way home. So, you know, as far as a specific example, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there's just so many moments like that, that made every day just feel a, a little bit more comfortable. Do you still feel taken care of? by society or people in normal life? Or do you feel like you have to be out on an adventure to, to see that? You know, to a degree, I do. Boulder is a wonderful community. And I feel like this community really cares about people. At least I, I, I feel that. I, I hope that other people feel taken care of. Um, on my adventures, yes, of course. You know, one of the things I love hearing from my viewers on my YouTube channel is whether I'm riding in Mexico or riding in small town America, people from outside of the United States will write something and saying, hey, I, I watched the news about your country and it's kind of scary right now. And I have all these ideas of like what Americans are like. And then I watch your videos and I see the people that you're interviewing and you're talking to and you're totally changing my idea of what an American is like. And so I feel like, again, kind of like an ambassador to show people around the world what we're really like or what Mexicans in tiny villages are really like because the media, you know, paints a different picture a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like you said, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. You get that for an hour, you're going to have a pretty different view of what's going on. That's 
That's fascinating, man. Well, well, well. Tell tell us about. It took you a while to write a book. You know, I don't know if you had plans to write one sooner, or if this is, you never had plans to write a book. But t- but tell us a little bit about that process of of saying, you know, you because you have other mediums that you share your stories and you do that really well. Why did you feel the need or or the desire to write a book and tell the story through that medium? Good question. So I always wanted to write this book. When I rode my bike home from Honduras, even before, I was like, I am going to journal like crazy every single day so that I can someday write a book about this experience. And I didn't know what was going to happen or if it was going to be book worthy. I just knew that I wanted to write a book about this grand adventure. And so every single day, no matter how tired I was, I would sit in my tent and write in my journal and write notes And so at the end of this thing, I had lots of journals and like very detailed account of of everything that happened and all the people I met and the feelings I was having. And then I got home and I started writing the book back in 2006 and I got about 60 pages in and it was just daunting. Writing is is very hard. And at that time, I was like, I also want to be a TV guy. I want to be a TV host for the Travel Channel. So I got a bit distracted and I just started doing video stuff. And never really went back to the book idea until the pandemic, like 15 years later in 2020. And I was actually, so I also filmed a lot of the adventure home from Honduras on my little Sony Handycam. And when I first got home, I did edit together like a little three minute teaser of the entire adventure. And I submitted that to the Travel Channel. At the time they had a show that would play, play like people's vacation clips if it got chosen. And it did get chosen and it played on national TV. And that's where I really got the bug to be like a TV host, to work for Travel Channel. That was my way. I want to find a way to make a living doing this. I was like, okay, this is it. I can be a TV host and travel the world and tell stories. And so that little video got picked up by the Travel Channel. And then I started working for the Travel Channel and just never went back to the, the book side of things until the pandemic. I was at home. I didn't have a whole lot of new content for my channel. And I remembered, okay, I still have all these tapes, you know, it wasn't digital from the bike ride home that I've never really edited into a full length documentary. So I went through that whole adventure and I was looking at footage that I had, I don't even know if I'd ever watched fully. And I put together like an hour long documentary about my Honduras to Boulder adventure and how that was my very first adventure. And it led to a life of what I do now. And then, then I was like, okay, now that I've done this, I'm going to get out my journals and actually try to put this book together. And that's how it happened. <laughs> many, many years after the adventure. Many years after the adventure. I, you know, writing... Oh, it's hard to do, especially when you still got the energy to do things, you know, Uh, actually get out there and and create the stories you're going to write about later. And after this trip, I mean, you went on a, just a tear of adventures. Uh, It seems like year after year, I'm looking through the kind of your list and there's some on here that I know you did that aren't even on this list. What was the goal once you got back from Honduras and, and when did YouTube start to really pop up for you? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So YouTube popped up quickly after I got home. But at the time, YouTube was just a place to put up some videos and it was kind of goofy stuff. I don't even think there were subscribers back then. Yeah. or It's not the way it is now. And so... I remember online video being a thing, but I was like, I was focused on TV. I wanted to be a travel channel TV host. And so I started working for a local public access TV show in Boulder in 2006. And I created a show called Out There. And the show was to inspire people to get off their couches and get out there. And I ran around Boulder with the same Sony Handycam And I filmed all sorts of little everyday adventures that anybody could do. I wanted this stuff to be accessible to everyone. You don't have to be an elite athlete. You don't have to have the most expensive gear. There's a cool hike and you can all do it. Let's go do it. And so I created this show and that was kind of my practice. You've heard the term fake it till you make it. I was like, well, okay, I'm on public access. I'm just going to be a TV host and do this and and film my, my show and do it the way that I want to do it. 
And that was my first taste of the TV world. And I did 12 episodes and all sorts of fun stuff around Boulder. And I didn't think anybody was actually going to watch this show. Again, it was public access. I thought, okay, my mom's going to watch my show and maybe a few other people. But people actually started watching it and enjoying it. And uh, that's right when online video became a thing. The local newspaper here in Boulder, the Daily Camera, caught wind of it. They're like, hey, we're trying to do more online video for our website because this is the wave of the future. And we would like you to put your adventure videos on the Daily Camera website. And I said, all right, that's awesome. And they're like, we don't have a lot of money, but we can pay you $50 a video. And I was like, oh, yeah, man. Wow. Big money. Big money. I was living in my mom's basement at the time because that's where everybody goes when you come back from the Peace Corps and you don't have any money. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't making much money doing this, but I, I knew that someday it would all come together. I just had this confidence that it's all going to work out. And so I started doing these online videos for the Daily Camera and I started getting some random jobs from the travel channel. So this is like when the whole media landscape changed. Where before, to like create video content, you needed big, expensive cameras and a sound guy and a producer, like a whole crew to make a TV show. But now you could have you know a thousand dollar camera and a thousand dollar laptop, and you could make pretty much broadcast quality content. And so the Travel Channel was sending people out to film whatever they wanted and coming back home with these ready-made videos that way cheaper than ever before. And that's how I got my foot in the door in the TV world. Cause you did a lot of different things. Did it feel like lots of fits and starts and dead ends here, things here, or did you, did it just, did it feel like going from strength to strength? And I say that because we do have a lot of career adventures on here and it, and it's often it's it's actually rarely anything else, but just a, a random collection of experiences that do connect when you put the pieces together. But it, it, on paper, it doesn't seem to. Yeah, no, it was a struggle. You know, I would get all excited about a, a certain job. I would go to New York and audition for a host job. And I would get all my hopes up and then it would all come crashing down for reasons out of my control. And this happened over and over and over for the next 10 plus years in the TV world. The TV industry is very difficult to navigate. It's essentially like trying to go to LA and being an actor. There's a lot of competition. It's really hard to pull it off. Extremely limited amount of roles. and Exactly. I mean, it was hard. And uh, here and there, I had some success. I was on the Travel Channel You know, I uh, was on a Discovery Channel survival show in the jungles of Venezuela. I thought that (laughs) might lead to something. Yeah. And that was the hardest thing you'd ever done. That was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. I lost 30 pounds in a matter of a month eating termites and bugs and grub worms. You know, that adventure didn't launch my career in the way that I wanted it to, but it was really one of the most valuable adventure experiences of my life. No doubt. Wow. I played in this TV world for years and it was fun and exciting when I was getting jobs, but you know, maybe I'd make $20,000, which is to me at the time, huge money, but then I wouldn't make another dollar for nine months, you know? And so I learned to like really live simple and to live below my means and keep my expenses down. Um, and it just got to the point where it was just, it was too much to deal with. You know, I got my hopes up too often for them to be crashed And in 2016, I'd had enough. I had just filmed a pilot for a show on Travel Channel. They said it was going to be the next big thing. Finally, all the stars had aligned. My hard work paid off and I was going to be a TV host. But it all came crashing down. And I was like, I'm done with this. I'm sick of this TV world. I'm going to try to make a go at YouTube. Because at this time, this is when Casey Neistat was making his daily vlogs. And it was really inspirational to see him actually build up a channel with a huge following and make a living off of YouTube. And I was like, well, maybe I can do something like that, uh, but more adventure style than Casey. You know, he also brought up the production value of YouTube because before this, people always kind of discounted YouTube as being low quality and people are just putting up webcam videos. But Casey came along and was like, no, man, this can be awesome. And so that inspired me. And that's when I dropped the TV world and I went for YouTube like full blast. I started making about one video a week and slowly building up my channel. 
I really emphasize slowly because it took a long time. And that's where I am today, you know? And uh, I've never had a viral hit that's launched my channel. It's just been slow growth. I'm very focused on interacting with the audience. I want them to know that I am there to help them. If you have questions, you can email me or message me. I will help you with gear questions or whatever. Like I want to be of service. And that really is the bottom line. I want to make content that is putting value into the world, that is helping people in some way, shape, or form, maybe to inspire them to try their own adventure or to become storytellers in their own right. And that's where I'm at today. You mentioned slow growth. Tell, tell us how slow are you talking? Because I, I, I think a lot of people think, okay, yeah, a year or two. Yeah, no. So 2016, I started making videos and the videos were just as, they looked pretty much the same as my videos today. They were high quality. I put a ton of time into them. And, you know, my first video gets like 76 views. And I'm like, oh, man, that's a lot of work for 76 views. And then the next week, I'd put out another video. And maybe it would have 84 views, you know? And it was like it was like this for a long time where, you know, the videos weren't really hitting in, at all. I didn't have a subscriber base. It was slow. And so, like, after two years, I think I had 10,000 subscribers. After two full years of, like, this being my full-time gig, pretty much, making videos every single week. And I was lucky lucky to be in a position where, I, you know, I'd been living off of TV money. So I didn't need a lot of money. My expenses were low. Most people, I understand, would never be able to pull this off because they have kids or a family or rent or mortgage. But I purposely kept my expenses low so that I could try something like this, knowing that I probably wasn't going to make much money for a long time, if at all. If at all. You know, besides keeping expenses low in the energy, what, what were some of the other key ways you, you made this possible for yourself? And, and maybe someone can't do it to the, someone listening can't do it to the degree you're talking about. But all of us can keep our expenses low to, to build more space in our life for either adventure or starting something on the side. You know what I'm saying? What are some of those other major principles you, you, you do your best to stick to? You know, I so I was really focused. I was when I d- decide to suit, do something, I do it. And so I, I understand that a lot of people are like they might try this little YouTube experiment for a few months. And if it's not working, they're going to bail and do something else that has higher impact, higher, higher yields. But I was focused on it. And so every single week, I'd come out with a new video. So that, the consistency helps build up a channel because people are like, okay, I like this guy Ryan's videos and I can count on a new video from him every single week. And so that's one of the ways to grow on YouTube, at least for me. And then, you know, all the other ways of, you know, keeping your expenses low and just staying focused and doing things that were true to my heart. You know, I wasn't trying to copycat any other channels that were successful. I was creating content that I wanted to create because I thought these stories were impactful and important to share. So that was really important as well, just to stick to what I truly believe in and not, you know, look at other channels and be like, oh, that channel has way more views. I'm going to try their style out for a little bit. Mm, Trends and uh, it's probably difficult, you know, watching channels blow up overnight and think, you know, what are they doing? Why don't I try yeah, that? Then you, and then you start beating yourself up. You're like, well, why am I not getting views? And this other person started even after me and their channel's rocking and rolling already. And they suck. Start, yeah, and they suck, <laughs> man. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's a dangerous hole to get into. And it was the same game in the TV world where I'd look at other TV hosts and be like, what do they have that I don't have? And then you start beating yourself up. So you really have to remember if you're on this path, if you're a creative person, you have to be kind to yourself. You have to be patient and really truly believe in what your message is. Mm. And my message has always been, you know, the get out there from the public access TV show days to inspire people to get outside and do something. Wow. You know, comparison, I always think of comparison like uh, gambling in a casino. It feels really good when you win. You know, if you're yeah. comparing yourself to someone who's, who's, you know, you're, you're, you're what, winning or beating and, uh, yeah. but in the long run, the house always wins and you, you, it leaves you in a horrible place. If comparison yeah. is, is your kind of main way to, to build validation in yourself or build your self-esteem, it's not going to work out. 
for anybody. No, really. It's, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous hole to get into. And I know that we all go there. I still go there, you know, but you just, you really have to focus on you and what you're doing. You know, speaking of that, I'm sure your payment in the early days was hearing from folks that you were inspiring. That was kind of the currency. It doesn't pay the bills, but it keeps your the fuel burning in, in your soul. What, what are some of the coolest either stories or trips or if you can think of any specific from that, that you've helped inspire. Maybe it was a trip. There's a few I've heard on this show where people, you know, biked across the U.S. or took their kids somewhere they wouldn't have. And I'm like, wow, that's people had experiences because they heard this story on this show. And I'm sure you have millions of those examples. You know, and the, that, that really is the best part of what I do. And I call that my emotional paycheck. When I get an email <laughs> from somebody that says, Hey, you know, I randomly found your videos and I hadn't touched my bike in 15 years and you somehow inspired me. And I went out into my garage and pumped up my tires and went for a ride. And now I've been riding for every day to work and to the grocery store and I've lost 30 pounds and I just feel so much better and more confident. And now I got my kids some bikes and we're all riding together as a family. Those are the messages I love getting. Those messages... They don't pay the bills, but they do fill up my heart and they motivate me to keep doing what I'm doing. Because at the end of the day, that to me is the most important thing. I've always kept a simple life. I don't need a lot of money. And if I can actually inspire somebody in some tiny town in the United States or on the other side of the planet because of my videos, then it's all worth it. And it, like a, a, an example of somebody I met in, in real life, I was on Ragbri. It's a big bike ride across Iowa. 20,000 people ride bikes across the entire state. It's a wonderful event in 2018. And I met a young guy who I, he, I was riding my bike and he starts yelling my name, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. And I was like, oh God, what, what? And so I stop and go over to him and he's like, hey man, I just have to tell you that uh, your videos really saved my life. And I was like, well, oh, that's, that's a bit much. Are you sure I really saved your life? And he's like, no, man. He's like, I, you know, was over 500 pounds. My doctor told me that I was going to die unless I changed my ways. And so this gentleman went on YouTube to like, look at ways to lose weight, I guess. And he found my videos and he got inspired and he got a bike. And at the time I met him, he had lost like 200 or so pounds. And it was a really beautiful moment. And then he started showing me pictures of his new baby. And he said, I'm doing this for my baby so that I can be there for her when she grows up. And it was one of those moments where I was a little choked up, obviously, because it was such a, a powerful interaction with this guy who I'd never met. And to meet him in real life and be able to hug him and tell him that he's amazing and I'm proud of him, that was pretty special. No, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly why you do what you do. And you make amazing videos and take people on these adventures in this kind of longer form content, which, you know, is, is fighting its own battle in in our uh, kind of attention-deprived world, you know? You're helping folks engage for a little while. And I, I saw recently the healthiest, you know, what is it? The platform with the least negative effect on mental health was YouTube, and specifically oh, wow. long-form YouTube, because oh, cool. it's usually... There's, it's usually much, much higher quality mm-hmm. as far as like what the, what, what the topics are in discussion. It's not short little, you know, funny videos that are basically junk food yeah. for your mind. It, it's stuff that people are really getting a lot out of a lot more than they similar, you know, closer to like a book for instance, than, than not. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. And so that, that's really cool to see that folks are, lives are literally changing from this. When you make your videos, a couple more questions. Make your videos. I feel like I'm asking a comedian, like, where do you get your ideas? You know, the, 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 word, the one question you never ask. W- w- with all the options out there, how, how do you select your next adventures? Because y- you've started doing some different things recently, like cycling in Africa, going back to Mexico. Like, like what, 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 how do these things come about for you? So really it's, I have this long list of dream adventures and I slowly tick them off. Sometimes I'll get advice from viewers because they'll be like, oh, you got to come here and try this out. 
And I'll, I'll do those types of things sometimes. You know, the thing in Africa that I just did with Rwanda, the tourism mm-hmm. board reached out to me and said, hey, we found your channel. We love it. <laughs> That's awesome. We are trying to build up Rwanda as a cycling destination. And we want you to come here and, and show off how awesome Rwanda is for bikes. And so I was like, of course, I'd never been to Africa. This is a great opportunity. They paid all of my expenses out there. And that's how that came about. But really, I just, I want to do what I want to do. So I have a list of adventures, but also at the same time, I want to create content that's relatable to people to do adventures that other people can do. I don't want to just do super hard stuff that only a select handful of people can actually pull off. I want to create content that people can watch and be like, you know what? Ryan's having the time of his life. I want to go do that. You know, I want to make it relatable to people. You know, I, I know listening to Will's story, and I'll let you go here in a second. The snowman race is one you want to do. Yeah. Dude, we've, I've got a lot of friends that have done it. We've done some work with them. One of the reasons they do this is to get the word out there about kind of their societal and environmental initiatives in the country. You'd be a perfect person for that just because of your platform. You'd have to run it though, wouldn't you? I, it's kind of running. I don't think people run all that much because it's such high altitude, but yeah. Trekking. I mean, I'm all about running. Like, I'm, it's funny. People think I'm much more of a cyclist than a runner because my channel is mostly bike stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm actually a much better runner than a cyclist as far as running a race. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe a, uh, another channel focused on running. Th- this is a side question. I know you're sober. Do you drink athletic brewing or you, do you drink non-alcoholic beer at all? You know, I've been sober for almost eight years now. Best decision I ever made. I don't really drink a lot of the non-alcoholic beers because I, it's funny. I never liked beer because of the taste. I just like to party. Right. Yeah. I like the feelings. I like the effects. Once in a while, I'll have a, like a non-alcoholic beer. And I, I've, you know, I've definitely tried a lot of athletic brewing and I love what they're doing in the world. And I love to see their growth, but I'm not a huge non-alcoholic beer guy. I, I like, I like my LaCroix. Yeah, you know, people are like, you know, am I going to like it if I don't like beer? And I'm always like, no, no, you won't. It's beer. <laughs> it's it, the it, same. It's, yeah. it, it's, it is beer. It tastes, it's, the taste is indistinguishable. So if you don't like yeah. one, you're not going to like this either. So, <laughs> you know, that's funny. So I, I just meant to ask, I heard you mention that before. Yeah. But, you know, I, I not, you know, like Will, I don't have your book on me right now. Yeah. And I don't have a bean burrito in my pocket. <laughs> But I, I do want to know this, you know, after all this, after where you are, this is by no means, you know, an end of your story. You're in the middle of your story still. What does your mom think now? <laughs> that is an awesome question. Wow. That's a good one. So my mom, for most of my adventure career has been terrified, just as terrified as she was when I did the Honduras to Boulder bike ride. <laughs> Every time I did anything like, oh man, like, are you sure you want to do this? So it was always... I was always very shy to tell my mom about any upcoming adventures because I knew that she wasn't really going to approve of it. And it took a long time until maybe the last three or four years where she, I don't know if I'd say accepts it, but is this more on board? She realizes the impact I'm having on people. She realized how, how these adventures make me feel like how just like, it just makes me feel alive. This is what I thrive off of. I love being outside in mother nature and connecting with the world in that way. So I think she understands more like why I do this. Whereas before maybe she thought Ryan is just doing this dangerous thing as a stunt and it's, you know, irresponsible, but now like she gets it, you know, that this is my career and sorry, mom, there's going to be a lot more. (laughs) It's going to be a lot more. Just don't watch the videos. Yeah, exactly. No, she's my number one comments. Just read the comments. Yeah, she watches them. She's, you know, after the fact, she's a big fan. Before I go out and do something scary, she's a little weary, but it's understandable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, I'm going to encourage folks pick up the long way home. It sounds like there's a lot of just... You allowed this thing to slow cook, this story, this, 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 uh, the lessons from it and really let it sink in, get a lot of perspective on it before you captured it in these words. Maybe as we close, what, what are some of the biggest lessons people are going to walk away from or things you hope they do? And where would you like people to, to get this book? You know, I want people to read the book and just have an open mind 
about adventures like this, but also the world and, and just meeting humans, you know, in, in far off places and how it's, it's not scary. You know, we're kind of trained to stay away from strangers, you know, but this book really, it shows that, you know, like everybody's out there with a good heart. It's fun. It's a, it's a fun adventure story and hopefully it'll inspire you maybe not to ride your bike thousands of miles, but maybe just ride your bike to the grocery store a little bit more often and uh, just to turn every day into a little adventure. That's it. And so you can get it at doozerbook.com. It was printed here in Boulder, Colorado, the most environmentally friendly fashion possible. And I'm really proud of the printing process, the book, everything. Recycled paper, algae-based ink. Algae-based yeah, ink, that baby, was cool. you know. That yeah, non-toxic cool. glues. You know, it's not shipped across the world from China like a lot of books. Like I really, I spent a lot more money on this book and printing it because I wanted it to be as eco-friendly as possible. Ryan, thanks so much, man. This is a lot. You you were one of those guests that's like, I gotta get him on at some point. And just the years go by, man. The years go by. It's like you're a perfect, perfect guest for this show and, and to inspire those folks and. Um, there's a lot of people that are going to be taking action after hearing this. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining. And thank you for giving me the time and the thoughtful questions. You're awesome. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.